You're listening to audio from Cornerstone Christian Fellowship, located in Lebanon, Pennsylvania. We hope this message is helpful to you in your journey with God. For the live stream archive of our worship services, you can visit youtube.com slash cornerstonelebanonpa. Christian community is best lived out in face-to-face relationships with one another. We encourage you to physically participate in a local church setting within your area. Learn more about our faith community by visiting cornerstonelebanon.com. Last week, I started a two-part sermon series on politics, kind of, and we, I'm just talking slowly so everybody gets back to their seats, and we are continuing in that today. Are you though? Are you sorry? I don't even know who said that. Sorry if that was offensive. So we are starting, we are continuing in the idea of politics, but this isn't just about politics. So while there will be some political flavor to the message today, this is really about our relationships with one another and how we communicate, how we love, how we disagree, how we interact with those that don't see the world in the same way that uh, we do. And when I say we, I mean we, us, individuals. Um, within Cornerstone, we are blessed to have a diverse crowd of people, I would say even politically, from people that lean left or right or agnostic, um, and that is something that the church should be about. The church should not be siloed politically, and you only gather with those on a Sunday morning in whom you agree with how they voted. Um, that is something uh, Christianity, with following Jesus, is supposed to be above and beyond that. So again, while we're talking about politics today, we're also just talking about relationships with one another. Um, last week, I spoke a little bit um, about tribalism. We'll connect with that again. But then I'm going to give a, a prayer, a practice, and a proclamation as we head towards the communion table Uh, for the pinnacle part of our worship today as a gathered people. If you're visiting today, welcome. My name is Justin, one of the pastors here. Glad you're here. We are all at different places in our journey with Jesus, in our journey in life, trying to figure out what life is about, trying to find um, what is good, true, and beautiful, how to deal with the brokenness and mess of our lives. Uh, And so we welcome everybody here. Last week, uh, last week, I talked a little bit about tribalism. I want to talk a little bit more about that with an exercise. So I want you to take a minute, and I want you to think about which piece of art you like better. Which piece of art? And you're not allowed to say, I hate all art, and I choose neither. You need to pick one or the other. Which piece of art do you like better? The one on the left, the one on the right? And then just tell somebody around you which one you prefer. Um, So you have a minute, chit-chat about it. And why? Is there a reason you prefer it? Thirty seconds. 
Okay, time's up. If you preferred the one on the left, could you raise your hand, please? The one on the left. And then if you preferred the other one, the one on the right. Hmm. That was a, that was a, that was a pretty good split. Pretty good split. So in the 1970s, there was this uh, social psychologist, Henry Tajfel, and he did this experiment that has to do with this us versus them mentality. And what he did is that he basically did what I just did, and he put a bunch of people into a room and say, which piece of art do you prefer? And he wanted to take something that kind of did not really matter. You know, this is aesthetic preferences. Um, but he wanted to see what happens when we split even on something of, uh, it's meaningful, but it's on a low level of how it actually affects our lives. He wanted to see like if these people were in this group of, the, I choose this painting, or these people were in that group, I choose this painting, how did they interact with one another? So they put two uh, somewhat abstract painters that were popular around the time, Klee and Kandinsky. One was a Swiss-born German artist, the other a Russian artist. And they worked through three different kinds of variables. And what they found out as they split the group, they wanted each of the group members to kind of award points either to your group, your in-group, or to the quote-unquote other group, the out-group. And there were some interesting things that they found. Um, one, which probably isn't anything new, the, the in-group was awarded more points. So the group that you just identified with as there was these different surveys that happened, you gave your group more points than the other group, which makes sense, right? Because you're like, well, they have better taste, or I identify with them, and so why would I not give my group more things? However, one of the more interesting things that came out of the, the experiment, and again, whenever we think about um, sociological or psychological experiences, there's always nuance in them, there's always ways of interpreting, there's always limits to it, so don't take this stuff as gospel, but I think it points to something. One of the things that they found is that a person in an in-group would rather take less points, and all of these points added up to real money. So depending on how many points your group got, you would actually get physical money, not a lot, but some money. In, in the groups, they would find that uh, the difference of the amount of money between the two groups was more important to assigning points than to getting the maximum amount to both groups. So let me say that again. So instead of being like, um, we each get a thousand points, and those thousand points then equal, let's just say, into a thousand dollars. Rather than that, there was more variables, there was more uh, evidence that showed that they would rather, a, an in-group person would rather lower how much they got as long as the other group got less than that. So instead of this common good where we both, both groups, get $1,000, I would rather have uh, $600 go towards my people. Who's on the left? My people? Yeah. yeah. That's what I, yeah, that's the right answer, by the way. Um, depends on if you let this left or that left. Um, I would rather take a lesser amount, so instead of 1,000, I would rather have 600 and make these people over here only get 100, rather than both of us get 1,000. And so there's this discrepancy or the maximum difference between the groups was more of a motivator than the overall common good of what uh, everybody could get. 
of what everybody could get. And I think that plays into the fact that we're all about doing good to one another as long as it's, um, Ron, can you move the cursor because it's going to drive me crazy? Yeah, get it off there. Okay. Um, we're, we're all about doing good to those that we like to do good to. But then when there are people that maybe we question their motives, we question how they vote, we question where they come from, um, then the amount of good we actually want to do to them sometimes can be lessened. And that's not the Jesus way. There's not this favoritism that happens. Uh, we're going to be in the scripture a lot today, flying through a lot of scriptures. Uh, if you need a Bible, you don't have to, you can just listen to my wonderful voice read the scripture. There's also Bibles in the middle bar, or feel free to use your phone or your biblical text, physical text. Um, and I wanted to start out with a passage that talks about the common good a little bit, and 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, it's in the New Testament, kind of towards the end of um, the scriptures, and I wanted to read starting in verse 11. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 11. This is the apostle Peter, as you can guess, speaking to the church in the area, in the region. We're reminded that there were circumstances and contexts that Peter was speaking to, and yet, even as we recognize those, we also recognize the transcendence of the word and how it speaks to us today. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh or the passions of our sinful nature, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the nations, among the pagans, among those that are not like you, honorable so that when they speak <clears throat> against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So what Peter is kind of getting at is that you might be saying something as a Christian that might not vibe with the nations or the Gentiles, but that you believe is gospel truth and that is a, a healthy way of viewing the world, that is a true way of viewing the world. And yet that is going to cause some trouble. There's going to be some accusations that come against you even as those accusations come, can they also look at your life and be like, even though I disagree with what Justin had said or the way Justin views the world as a Christian, can I look at his conduct and be like, that's honorable conduct? Verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Again, this isn't a blanket statement contextually to say that whatever the government says is good and right. We know that's not true. We also see in the scriptures where uh, Peter and John stood up to the governing authorities saying like, we must follow God and not man in this situation. But there is the sense of like, if there is some kind of law that doesn't actually make you uh, transgress your conviction, that you're not just looking for a fight. You're just not going against the man to go against the man, but you actually submit to good laws. Also, as it talks about the emperor as supreme, that's actually a title. That's not saying that the emperor is the supreme, the king is the supreme authority in all of the life. It would be like when a judge walks into the room and they say something like, this is the honorable blah, blah, blah. Is that what they say, Barry? Do you know? Do they still say that? The on when a judge walks into the room, do they still say the honorable somebody? So that judge might not be honorable, 
but they still say that because there's a position that he's holding that he's supposed to be in that he's honorable. So it's not saying that the emperor is supreme ruler. It's just saying contextually that the king here is in this certain position. Um, so there's not like a, a worship at all of this emperor. For this is the will of God that by doing good, not just to those you like, by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. By doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. This is the word of the Lord. So last week we talked a little bit about being stupid if you weren't with us. Um, This is not necessarily to call us um, um, having low intelligence, but it's to say that if we as a people uh, cannot receive correction, cannot be open to uh, uh, the fact that we are biased, cannot be open to the sense that we might be wrong, that the scriptures, a proverb says that if we can't do that, we're like beasts. We end up becoming senseless. We end up becoming brutish. And one of the ways that the Lord grows us as Christians is that he disciplines us. He trains us and he rebukes us. So as you become a Christian, it's not like, oh, all of a sudden I have the world figured out and I can just coast along. I've hit the ceiling of my spiritual growth now that I've given my life to Jesus. That our walk with Jesus is a continual thing as we're constantly growing and learning. We're learning about the reality that we don't have it all figured out. It says in the Psalms that God does not take pleasure in the strength of a horse, and that is like the idea of political power or political might, or he does not take, and he does not take pleasure in human might. No, the Lord's delight is in those who fear him and those who put his Uh, their hope in his unfailing love. So our hope is not in how we can one-up one another. Our hope is not because at least I'm not like that other political party. Our hope is not, well, I'm gonna get my own way by forcing and uh, pushing myself into it or manipulating the situation and flattery. Our hope is in God's unfailing love for us. We are called to be a peculiar people And to be a peculiar people will be our prophetic witness in the world. We are not possessed by the secular or religious culture or the political systems, even as we work within them. So as we're talking, as I'm talking today, I'm not saying don't participate in politics. I'm saying the way and how you participate in American politics matters. And maybe you've decided not to, there's like levels of participation. That's up to you and the Holy Spirit. You know, you can check in with your community about that. I'm not saying to completely take yourself out of the world. You know, Jesus, when he prays for us, he says, I don't want them to leave the world. I actually, God, want you to protect them from the evil one while they're in the world. So we want to be present in our communities. We want to be present uh, with our city um, to whatever degree that might be. But we don't want to be possessed by the political nature of America. We are, in some senses, strange to the societal norms of the left and of the right. We're unusual in how we embody the truth, and we are curious in our expressions of love towards others. And I defined tribalism last week. This is a little bit of a review, but tribalism is an idolatrous loyalty to a group. We're meant to be in groups. We just gather as human beings into groups. We, there's things that we share in common that we want to be um, with others that are like-minded. But tribalism is an idolatrous loyalty to a group that usually causes harm to outsiders and it also co-signs the evil of insiders. Meaning like that thing that's going on in my group, 
I'm going to overlook, even though I might call it out in that other group that I'm not part of. Like, well, I know, uh, I know Justin, so I'm going to kind of overlook that because he's part of my tribe, part of my group. But that's where idolatry kind of takes place. Tribalism will eventually destroy the tribe it has infected because it nurtures the vice of playing God. We're the ones that make all the ultimate, ultimate decisions. Again, tribes, groups are not bad, but tribalism is. Cornerstone could be seen as a tribe, a group of people. But then what happens if there's unhealthy things that happen within Cornerstone? Even if you're loyal to the, the group of people here. What happens when, as a group of people, we see ourselves as elite in the city and we start judging and condemning other churches or other ministries because they're not like us? Doesn't mean you don't need to see differences. Doesn't mean you need to agree on everything. And then also, we could even say that we're part of the, gro- the tribe or the group that is Americans. And it's good to be an American. This is where you're born. You, most of us did not have a choice as to being an American. We were born in this land. And how do we uh, interact as Christians, as people that, that are looking for redemption in this land? And so being patriotic isn't necessarily a bad thing. As we are being patriotic, we can be thankful for the benefits and the freedoms we have in this country. We can be patriotic in participating in seeking the welfare of where we live, seek the welfare of the city, seek that the city would prosper because in it you will find your own prosperity. But being patriotic can devolve into nationalism. And this is where we co-sign to to keep some of the rights that we have. This is where we harm others to get benefits. And as Christians, This is when we make an improper pledge of allegiance to the empire of America rather than to the kingdom of God. And if we do that, we're in dangerous territory, especially when we can't see a separation between our spiritual lives and the American political realm. This has led in the past to the false idea that the United States Constitution by some is a divine document. This has led in the past to the implementation of kind of like a a mindset or a theology in some people of manifest destiny, where the United States is destined by God to expand its dominion and spread democracy and capitalism across the entire North American continent, no matter the manner in which it is rolled out. This led to the brutal mistreatment and dislocation of Native Americans, Hispanic occupants, not to mention the need of African slave workers to build the nation and expand it. In this so-called divine mission that was twisted, the so-called blessed end justified the harmful means. And there is definitely generic Judeo-Christian roots to our country, which we should be grateful for. But an overselling of our spiritual heritage can lead to a collective narcissism where our tribe or the tribes within our tribes, you know, Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Agnostics, um, we end up uh, losing a sense of the kingdom of God as Christians. And instead of taking the idea of where do I need to be responsible, joyfully accountable, we end up taking an arrogant liberty with our faith in our politics. 
And this was in the scriptures also. In the scriptures, this is known um, the- theologically as Zionism. Has anybody heard of that term before, Zionism? I've mentioned it a couple times. And Zionism has many different definitions, so I'm using one of them. And in the scriptures, this is where uh, there was a country that was literally God's favored nation, which was Israel, and they weren't left off the hook as they conducted their life. Right? And so there's different versions of Zionism that we can see within it. And that just means Zion was like the capital. Zion was Jerusalem. And uh, the thought was like, as long as we're part of this people group, what can happen to us? We can do kind of whatever we want, quote unquote, within reason. And we're God's favorite. We're God's chosen. And yet the prophets that God sent to Israel and to us say differently. Um, in Jeremiah chapter 7, if you want to turn there, um, I'm not going to wait for you to turn there, so you could also just listen. In Jeremiah chapter 7, we get this sense of Zionism where um, things are becoming corrupt, and there's this rubber stamp of approval that because we are God's favored people, then we also have this out. Uh, Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1, This is the word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate at the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. So God says, reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in the deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. So this was a slogan, this was a catchphrase, this was almost a political religious statement that was like, because the temple of the Lord is here, nothing bad could happen to Jerusalem. Nothing bad could happen to Israel. Was that true? No. Verse five, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors, forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. And so we must be aware that even though um, we believe that God loves us and that in Christ we are favored, as, uh, as a people, we are God's chosen people, as the scriptures say. That ability to be chosen and to be loved and by favor that we have surrendered our lives to doesn't get us off the hook for the injustices that we cause, for the abuse that we cause, for the uh, ways we mishandle or misinterpret all kinds of things. That does not get us off the hook. 30 years ago, there was, a, there was uh, many books written, but there was one about this kind of overlap between religion, Christian religion, and politics. And the author of this book says that the holiness of the kingdom of God must be preserved. If Jesus refused to acknowledge the fight for Israel and fight for Israel as God's favorite nation, even though it was the one nation in history that actually held this status at one time, how much more must his followers refuse to acknowledge and fight for America as God's favored nation? To say it another way, if Jesus was committed solely to establishing a kingdom that had no intrinsic nationalistic or ethnic allegiances, not even with Israel, how much more should his followers be committed to expanding this unique non-nationalistic kingdom? How much more should we be? We are not Israel 
Some of the promises that are in scripture that were towards Israel are not towards us, even if we can glean from them. We must be ever so discerning in listening to and using religious rhetoric in connection with American politics. Justice on one side, truth on the other side are often not used as gospel principles, but in a sense, a version of witchcraft used to manipulate minds, to conjure up emotions, and to coerce God into a corner to do our own political bidding. In the midst of all this brokenness, we must be reasonable with ourselves and kind to one another as we're all trying to figure out this life together thing. God is still at work and we're listening for his word woven through common grace in all that he has created. So as we work, as we talked last week on the idea of being challenged and the idea of being corrected and the idea of being trained, as we work on receiving appropriate challenge and pushback to our own biases, let's tune our ears to what comes out of the mouth of an ass or the mouth of an elephant, which might resonate with the kingdom of God. However, if we're constantly looking for the word of the Lord through a donkey or a pachyderm, speaking to us. We need to change our spiritual formation practices. How often are we giving ourselves over to news cycles, whether to the left or to the right, that are telling us how the world, quote unquote, really is? Are we just looking for God to speak in these uh, silos to us and we reject anything else? As Jesus says to his followers then and today, consider carefully how you listen. Pay attention to how you hear. So don't be stupid. That's the exhortation from last week. Today, don't be stupid. This is to myself too, with your freedom. So as I was looking at the uh, yard signs, one of my favorite things to do around political time is to look at yard signs, see what's on there. I used some of those yard signs a couple, uh, I think it was at the beginning of the year with Epiphany Politics, a left sign, a right side, a, a libertarian sign. Um, and again, I mean nothing directly personal if, you're, if this sign that I'm about to say is in your, in your yard. What I care about is to make sure that this sign is not planted into your heart or this flag is not being woven above your mind. Like we all have choices to make of who we promote, who we don't promote. Um, and I actually pick this sign because it's pretty neutral. It's very neutral. So one political sign that I noticed, and it did not have a name attached to it. I had to look it up to see who, whose it was, um, or if it was even, I thought it was just maybe a Christian sign, honestly. Um, I had to look it up to see what it was, but it was connected to a political candidate. And my purpose in bringing up this sign is not to endorse or decry the candidate. Um, it's me looking at the cultural environment around us, seeing what captures my attention, what sticks out, and consider then how the gospel reforms or transforms this catchphrase. And so maybe you could tell, and maybe you know the sign, maybe you don't. Um, the sign I saw was walk as free people. Walk as free people. Has anybody else seen that sign around? Yeah, it was a couple. It was, it's, not, it's not a lot because the one I saw didn't have a name on it. So it was a very generic sign. You could also be like, as walk is free people, um, it could also be one of those things that could be left or right. It's not like something that's like, hey, this is a Republican sign or this is a Democratic sign. Walk as free people. 
And I think that regardless if you swing right or swing left in your uh, politics, that it's a general enough statement and it's a desire for all of us, whether we're Republican, Democrat, Libertarian, or agnostic, um, to have some kind of liberty in our country, right? That's a common, common thing that we want. Uh, but what I want to do is taking that phrase, uh, walk as free people, I want to look at a couple things very briefly in, in uh, prayer, practice, and proclamation uh, as, as we head to the communion table today. So does everybody get it? You're gonna, everybody's going to look up that sign now to see who, who, who it is. And again, I'm not talking about the person. I'm talking about the thing. But I want to talk about a prayer to get beyond yourself, a practice in putting others above yourself, a proclamation to willingly shackle yourself. Okay, everybody with me? Yeah? Okay. Okay. First uh, Peter 2, if you still have your Bible open to it, I'm continuing in First Peter 2. First Peter 2, starting in verse 16. So the phrase we're thinking about is um, uh, walk as free people, but as free people, specifically as Christians that have a higher allegiance, we don't want to be stupid, meaning we don't want to be brutish in our freedom. So how do we walk as free people in our freedom according to the scriptures? Verse 16, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Live as people who are free, which in other things it says live as free people. And I think other translations actually say walk as free people. Um, live as free people. Live as people who are free. Full period. No. Comma. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as free people. Live as people who are free, but not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Honor your in-group? Yeah. Honor your out-group? Yes. Love the brotherhood. Love those that are close to you. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And the cool thing about that last thing, honor the emperor, is that in the contextual thing, you were actually supposed to worship the emperor. And so even though for us to here honor the emperor of an emperor we don't like, that is a gospel Christian thing to do because it's also saying, even as you're honoring that person as a human being creating God's image, which you, you might vehemently dislike, that you're still supposed to honor them, but you're not supposed to worship them. They are not God. Fear God, honor the emperor. One Christian uh, social commentator wrote a couple of months ago that our politics aren't awful enough. And what he meant by awful was not the sense of bad or um, horrible or dreadful, but they're not full of awe and wonder and astonishment. And he did this because he looked at the work of two other social psychologists that were studying how we relate to one another. And they said that awe, the sense of awe, is something that helps us break out of tribalism. It's something that helps us break out of our biases. And they say awe is an emotion that is activate, activated by vastness. Can everybody say vastness? Vastness. In which something overwhelms us and makes us feel small. Quick aside, we were recently, Naomi and I, where's my wife? We were recently in Utah and talk about feeling small 
We went to uh, Zion National, we're Zionists, I guess. We're into Zionism. No, um, we went to Zion National Park and just the, the vastness and the grandeur of being in a place that y- you almost get vertigo trying to find the top of some of the mountains. And it makes you feel so small, but not necessarily in a bad way. So vastness is one of them. The other uh, emotion that triggers uh, all is accommodation in which there's something outside of the normal way our minds are structured that we must change to make room for it. And this is when we have, like vastness can be happen in creation, happen in other places of art and beauty. But then this accommodation is when we actually get in a room with people that are different than us and they say something and we don't quite understand and yet there's something there and our hearts and our minds need to expand. That doesn't mean we let everything in. That doesn't mean we're like, oh, everything's the truth and everything is good. There's no such thing as lies and deceptions. That's not what I'm saying. But that something is coming in that we need to make ourselves a little bit broader in order to uh, receive what our friend or what that person is saying. And that helps us combat against our biases. Uh, Rob and Lisa, a couple uh, years ago now, before COVID, gave me this little poetry book by Denise Levertrov. And over the past couple months, I've been reading it. And there's this poem called The Beginning of Wisdom that talks about this vastness that I want to share with you. It says, you have, and this is directed towards God. It says, you have brought me so far. I know so much, names, verbs, images, my mind overflows, a drawer that can't close. Think about who you are now compared to when you were born and how much you've learned, how much you've grown since then. Unscathed among the tortured, ignorant parchment, uninscribed, light strokes only where a scribe tried out a pen. I've no idea what that means. I am so small, a speck of dust moving across the huge world. The world, a speck of dust in the universe. Are you holding the universe? You hold onto my smallness. How do you grasp it? How does it not slip away? I know so little and you have brought me so far. And I love the fact that you have brought me so far, God, and yet I know so little that there's this anchor point that is God, and yet there's this wonder, this vastness of life that is still to come. And I especially love the intimacy of that line that talks about how do you grasp something so small that you don't lose it? At the communion table today, there is sand. And in a couple minutes, as we go to the communion table, whether you're partake, partaking in communion or not, I want you to eat the sand. I'm just kidding. Um, don't eat the sand, Toby. Don't eat the sand. Okay. Okay. Um, there is sand there, but at some point today, I want you to try to get just a kernel or a fleck of the sand and, and try to keep that with you for like two minutes. Try to keep that with you for an hour. Try to keep that with you with a day without losing it. Challenge accepted? (laughs) It's ridiculous. In me preparing it, I tried it for like three minutes and I got frustrated. But the point is that not only that God is so big, but God can hold things that are so, so small without losing it. That in the hands of the creator, you are not lost no matter how you are feeling. That he has not misplaced you. And so that's our prayer today. God, show me how far you've brought me and how small I am. 
Our prayer today is show me how far you've brought me and how small I am. On to the praxis, uh, Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. And we're going to fly through these. I went long last week, I apologize, and maybe I'm going long today. Galatians 5, starting in verse 13. Again, there's always context to these things. As you're reading through things, always go back to find context, but for the word for today for us. Verse 13, chapter 5, Galatians. For you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. You are called to freedom. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for your sinful desires. Very, very similar to what we just heard. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Uh, One of the um, top Old Testament scholars, Bruce Waltke, summarizes the the book of Proverbs with a proverb himself. He says, the righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The righteous are willing to disadvantage themselves to advantage the community. The wicked are willing to disadvantage the community to advantage themselves. And we see in in the summary and the coming together of God's heart and everything, we see this in Jesus. This is how Jesus, the one most resourced, the one most secure, the one most in tune with social injustices, the one most aware of gospel truth, the one most enlightened to the evil of humanity, the one most conscious of humanity's good design, this is how the righteous one walked as a free person, by disadvantaging himself for the sake of others. So our praxis, as we're thinking about uh, our relationships, both politically and broader than that, how can you disadvantage yourself by helping to carry a burden for the sake of your community? How can you disadvantage yourself by helping to carry a burden for the sake of community? And this is not about how much wealth or resources you have. This goes to everybody, whether you have a, a lot or a little. What does it mean for you to put yourself out there for others? And then finally, the proclamation that we're going to be making at the table. Here we will be in, I'm in in two different Bible translations. I'm trying to decide which to pick. Uh, I'll pick the, uh, right or left, which one? (laughs) That has no affiliation with my political views. Um, uh, John chapter 8. Verses 31 to 32, one of the more famous Passages about, quote, unquote, freedom. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you follow my commands, if you follow my teaching, you are truly my disciples. And you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Oftentimes we just jump, jump to, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free without going to the previous things that talk about if you abide in my word. If you listen to my teaching, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And then just in verse 36, like we sang today, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. But there's some kind of binding, there's some kind of relationship in here. So if you flip uh, further over to Romans chapter six, I'm going to read uh, two verses from there. This is Paul talking about um, the idea of freedom. Verse 6, 16 
Paul says about this, he says, don't you know that when you offered yourselves, when you offer yourself to someone as obedient slaves, you are slave to the one you obey. Whether you are a slave to sin, or you could put servant in there, whether you're a servant to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. So here he's saying that he's putting up a, he's putting up a choice here. He's saying like, you're going to serve something. And even if you think you're going to serve yourself, you're still serving something else other than yourself. And here he's taking, you know, it's a very broad, big concept, but are you uh, bound to sin or are you bound to obedience in Christ? Thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart, so not just uh, a moralistic, I'm checking all the boxes, but from your heart, the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become servants to righteousness. There is this uh, professor, Dr. Folsom, that says this about freedom in the Christian walk. Freedom is not a concept among other concepts. It is made real and actual in Christ. Jesus does not teach us, just teach us the truth about God. He is the truth who is faithfully God to us and truly brings us home to the Father. Jesus gives content to the meaning of every word. Jesus is the ground of our grammar in talking about God and the God-human relationship. So if we take a word like freedom and describe it from our experience as freedom from our work, freedom from debt, freedom from the government, etc., it is a remove, it is a move of removal of obligation and responsibility. This is the Western vision of independence. It is subhuman and individually serving. Furthermore, freedom is seen as the empowerment of each person to do their own thing, which sounds good at first. Unfortunately, that is also the definition of sin. As Judges concludes, there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Jesus is the one who in love is freely for us. Freedom is the restoration of relation, not the removal of obligation. We are most free when we live within the love of the one who has given all, who is ever present, and loves in a way that restores and renews us into his image. When we are in Christ, we are new creatures who are free by sharing this life. He does not free us from sin to walk away, but to bind ourselves to him in freedom. I'm reminded of that old hymn, Oh, to grace how great a debtor, daily I'm constrained to be. Let thy goodness like a fetter. Who knows what a fetter is? Anybody? Yeah, I didn't know that. I had to look it up. A fetter is a shackle, a restraint, a handcuff. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Let thy goodness, your goodness, shackles me to you. Your goodness. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Lord, I'm prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it. I'm prone to leave the God I love. So here's my heart, Lord. Take and seal it for thy courts above. And so our proclamation today as we're thinking about relationship and politics and how we're connecting with one another and with Jesus, our proclamation as we go to this table is bind my wandering heart to thee. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Worship team, you guys can get uh, set up and ready.
Cornerstone, as we head to the table, the Eucharist, the table of thanks, communion, um, tables back there. Uh, there are, in the little cups, there are um, gluten-free options. If you're taking communion, you want to use that. There's also the, the bread in the cup. We take a piece of bread. We tear it, remembering Jesus' broken body. We dip it in the juice, reminder of the blood of the new covenant. And we're like saying, bind my wandering heart to thee, God. Bind my wandering heart to thee. Help me to... Um, see others above myself, help me to get beyond myself, make me small. Um, You're probably not going to be able to see the sand kernels with the lights down, but there's also sand there again. If you can, just try. It's even difficult just to get one kernel, but go ahead and try to get a kernel of sand and remember how small you are and how vast God is and how God still holds you. And that you are not lost. Even though we're going to lose that grain of sand at some point, we're going to misplace it. God has not misplaced you. And that God loves you. If you are not partaking of the communion table today, if you are at a place where you're still trying to figure this Jesus thing out, and a lot of the things I said today sound crazy, you are still loved and you are still welcomed here. And may you take this time to just sit in the presence of the Lord during music. We, we sing at this time. And also... Um, we haven't done this for a while, but Mike and Laura, I asked you about this, right? Okay. <laughs> Mike and Laura are going to be in the back, uh, that corner over there. If you need prayer for anything, doesn't have to deal with anything I said today. If you need prayer for anything today, Mike and Laura are available to uh, sit and stand back there with you um, to listen to you and to pray over you today during, during uh, um, the music. So we're going to continue and worship with two songs. And Cornerstone, if you're willing, uh, can we do this call and response? I'm going to read the small text. And then uh, um, if you could respond in reading the big text, if you feel comfortable doing so. And then this is kind of our call to worship as we head to the communion table. Jesus Christ, who is the faithfulness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. He has made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve his God and Father. Amen. The table is open.